Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. Welcome to The Feed, I'm Ann Romer. Your health and the healthcare system itself both facing unprecedented challenges right now. The triple threat, RSV, COVID-19, and predictions of a very difficult flu season. Plus, ERs overwhelmed and many Ontario hospitals already stretched to the limit. Now beyond with the recent surge in the number of young patients suffering from severe respiratory illnesses. We're going to be speaking in a moment with a pediatric infectious diseases specialist about this unfolding crisis in kids' health care. But first, the shocking state of affairs when it comes to Ontario ERs. Dr. Andrew Arcand is Chief of Emergency Medicine at Markham Stovall Hospital, Oak Valley. He joins us now on the feed. Dr. Arcand, I really mean this when I say thank you for taking the time. I know you are run off your feet. Yeah, and, uh, my, my pleasure to speak with you, Anne. And uh, yeah, it's been a little hectic. When you and I were back and forth emailing about this interview, you said in an email to me, we keep saying we've never seen anything like this, and it's true, and we're swamped. Can you expand on that? Yeah, well, I think that statement is uh, is very valid. It, we've been concerned for some time about our state of affairs uh, for many, many reasons. And it seems like the pressures are getting more extreme each week. And uh, it's impacting our ability to see patients and provide care. It's uh, impacting our ability to uh, get to the community that needs help with their health care. And uh, many, many patients and their families uh, in our area, our region, but also across the province are, are struggling when they are sick to get care in a timely manner. Let's talk about the condition of ERs right now, and in particular yours, because that's what you are overseeing and a part of. What is causing this surge in the numbers of people seeking emergency room help? What we've seen more recently, and it seems to be growing week by week, you know, when I think back to uh, a month, month and a half ago, uh, we, we were challenged, but we were, we were coping. We were able, able to get to patients, and we had space to kind of manage to see patients through chairs and hallways and rotate folks through. But we've, uh, we've noticed uh, within the past one and a half weeks or so that the volume of folks with well, I'll use the word febrile respiratory illness. So folks that look like they have a, a cold or a flu virus, uh, those numbers have increased dramatically. Uh, about a, maybe three weeks ago, we would see about 40 patients a day with that kind of symptomatology, and now we're at 100 per day. We see um, 100, 300, 300 patients a day, period. So a third of our patients, one out of every three, have uh, a febrile respiratory illness type uh, set of symptoms or syndrome. And that's dramatically different um, than what we've seen before. And Dr. Arcand, what percentage of those patients is, is a, a child, is a young person, is a young patient? Yeah, so that's changed too, Anne. So, so prior to that, we were about 45% of those types of patients were, were kids or our pediatric population. And we're at 60% now. So that uh, demographic has also changed. Are you still dealing with staff shortages? Yes, we are. Um, at our site, which you've asked specifically, we're, yep. we're doing a little bit better, but um, we still have lots of vacancies. Um, and we've hired a, uh, a number of staff. We've, we're doing our best to kind of add staff and trying to retain staff. Uh, and a lot of those staff uh, are, are junior staff or are learning or early in their career. And not all of them have the same type of experience with pediatric patients also. So that's a really, really important point um, that our staffing skill mix has changed. Um, but yes, we are still short uh, nursing and other staff. And talk to me about wait times. We're seeing in certain Ontario hospitals and, and really randomly right across the province that, that we're upwards of 24 hours waiting to be seen in an ER. Yeah, I saw that posted this week that one of the Ontario hospitals was at a 20-plus hour wait if you had a non-super-acute scenario, which is pretty pretty remarkable to think that you might go to an ED with an, uh, what you perceive to be an urgent need or, you know, you go to an ED with, with uh, an issue that you can't find help elsewhere and you might not be seen until the next day. Um, 
Our our hospital and our ED at uh, uh, Markham Stovall has done relatively well with our wait times historically, um, and we've noticed uh, over the past couple of weeks that we have been struggling to try to get to all of our patients in a timely way. We do, we really you know work 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 our darndest to get to these folks. Um, but we've had a few days that have been, you know, worse than I've seen in, in, in a number of times uh, where we just have not had the staffing um, and space capacity to get to, to patients and their families as they've arrived. Dr. Arcand, how would you describe the atmosphere in the emergency department and in particular in your hospital? What are people feeling going through, you know, there obviously is a reason why they feel they need to go to an ER. There's wait times, there are, you know, challenges, they're watching and observing everything that's going on around them. What are you seeing? Yeah, you know, um, as you can imagine, if you uh, if you come to the ED and you're worried, um, that's often, you know, potentially the worst day that you've had. And, uh, and, and we do our best to kind of, you know, manage folks care and whatnot, but uh, if, if you're waiting longer than you, than you would prefer or longer than you had expected, uh, you can imagine that um, anxiety increases and uh, the stress level increases uh, with respect to patients and their families. Uh, frustration increases. It's a pretty tough place to be at the best of times, let alone uh, with the, the situation that's evolving in front of us. You also kind of hope that you'd be seen in a in a private place and have a nice, comfortable area to to wait and 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 have care. And we're at the point now where we'll see anybody anywhere for the sake of you know making that connection and trying to figure out uh, why people have come and how best we can help them. So, you know, it's uh, there's less privacy, um, there's less comfort, uh, and uh, there's less there's less time. Uh, there's more time waiting to get that care in the first place. And then you can imagine you asked about how we're feeling on our staff. Yeah. Despite working, working like crazy, our, oh, and you've heard this before, we've been, we've been saying this, everybody's really exhausted, but we've, we've signed up to do this work and we accept that. So we come to work each day and the shifts are, are longer and harder and more complicated. And that takes a toll too. Uh, we do our best to be patient with our situation, but you can imagine also that uh, frontline staff, um, also are challenged when, when that stress level and frustration level is high. So what's the solution? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, um, first and foremost, our, our pediatric capacity in the province is really at risk. Uh, the GTA in particular is really struggling, where I think the other day there was maybe one uh, intensive care unit bed in the, in the, in the, uh, in the GTA core of the province for for any you know super sick kids, so um, and I think there's some action happening behind the scenes to try to create capacity. Uh, so I think that we'll see that, um, but it can't come soon enough. But again, you can you can create space in beds, but you need talented staff, well trained staff to work it uh, or work those beds. So that is a, a big big imminent need. And then you know I think I think we need to see from our from our uh, high-level leaders' acknowledgement of the state that we're in, and uh, and some real talent, tangible plans to allow us to be creative, to add staff, find space, uh, to try to get to these patients. We still we still send most of our patients home. You know, we see them, we treat them, and we're still sending a good chunk of those patients home. So it's important that we continue to get patients home that need to be home, uh, and also provide ongoing care for those who are just too sick to go home. So kind of a bi, uh, bimodal approach, I think, is really important. So here's a question. How do you know when it's time to go to an ER? Yeah, it's a really great question, Anne, and we struggle with how to provide folks that information because, quite frankly, it'd be awesome to for everybody just to just give me a show. We could chat on the phone and figure it out. That's, that's kind of what I do with my friends, family, and, and neighbors. Um, but the reality is it is up to you. Um, and what I would say is that, look, if you're ever, ever worried, uh, we'll, always, we'll always see somebody. If somebody is acutely short of breath, has work of breathing, is, has an altered level of consciousness, um, we'll always see those folks and they need to come. I think, I think the best piece of advice currently uh, are, are for parents with kids with fever. We are seeing huge numbers of kids with high, high fever. 
Uh, these fevers typically would last a couple days, and some of our flu that we're seeing are lasting for uh, up to seven, sometimes over seven days. So we typically want to see kids with five days of fever to assess them to see, you know, kind of how sick they are and what we may need, need to do. But with a couple of days of fever, even if it's super high, if, you're, if your child has, you know, a fever, cough, runny nose, and is otherwise doing okay, those are cases that we would, you know, suggest strongly, if you're comfortable, to manage them at home, yeah. uh, to seek care uh, from a, a different level of provider. So your family, your family physician's office, if you're fortunate to have a family physician, or their, their after-hours clinic is a really an essential first step uh, urgent care walk-in clinics are another option. Um, and then the other piece that's really important that, that I don't know if you know this, but I'm not sure if the public knows this, but at, at Markham Stovall Hospital, we actually run a cough, cold, and flu center. Mm. You can access that on our website, and we're seeing uh, patients of all ages, um, nine to five, uh, seven days a week currently, and you just uh, log in and can book, a, book an appointment uh, online, and there's about a 24-hour turnaround. So if you have a child at eight at night who you think you need to be seen and you're having troubles accessing care, you can book, a, book them in for the following day rather than coming uh, to see us in the ED. So, uh, so that's a really important resource for our community and potentially for York Region. You know, if you're really struggling, there's a spot here that you can book in, come and be seen by by a cross, uh, cross collection of uh, eMERGE physicians, family physicians, and pediatricians. Uh, and they have access to, to the hospital if need be. If your child is, is super sick, we can kind of transfer them over rather quickly. And for those listening right now who are really interested in what you've just said, and I've never heard of this, uh, could you repeat what it's called and how they access the information? Yeah, I, I, we should discuss this first as like a primary goal of this conversation. <laughs> yes. So uh, it's recently changed the name. It used to be our, our COVID assessment center. So we'll see COVID patients or folks who are at risk uh, of COVID. We'll do COVID testing and we'll, we'll prescribe Paxlovid, the antivirus medicine, if you uh, do have COVID and uh, have some risk factors. But the name of the clinic, it's, it's CCFCC. So a lot of C's with an F in the middle and it's cough, cold, uh, flu and COVID uh, clinic. Um, I, I believe, I don't have a computer right in front of me, but I believe to access, you can get it through the Markham Stovall Hospital or Oak Valley Health uh, website and look for the cough, cold, and flu COVID clinic, uh, CCFC clinic. And uh, appointments are booked online with a 24 to 36 hour turnaround. We'll see, we won't see babies, but we'll see uh, kids, adults with cough, cold, flu, and COVID symptoms. And it'll be a safe environment where, where we have access to do what we need to do. And take some of the pressure off the emergency department. So final question for you, Dr. Arkand, very busy Dr. Arkand. The triple threat, RSV, COVID, flu, staff shortages, bed shortages, uh, we're seeing a lack of, of over-the-counter uh, medication for kids, for instance. And now we're hearing of a shortage of some uh, antibiotics as well. This is a lot of pressure on the healthcare system. What is going to have to happen in order for it to support all of what is going on in terms of people's health in Ontario? Yeah, you ask a really challenging question and you name, uh, you know, about 10 factors <laughs> that are really struggling. So, you know, I think all of those things that you mentioned need to be dealt with. And my heart bleeds for uh, families who are looking with kids to get a hold of medicine to help manage their children's symptoms. Uh, there is a shortage, as you mentioned. I, I, I hope, and I, I'm, again, I'm hearing, I'm hearing rumblings that there's some work afoot to try to uh, aggressively get some medications back uh, for over-the-counter access. But we encourage folks uh, to use other preparations. A pharmacy will help you if you can grind up adult doses, depending on how old your child is. Uh, chewables are a bit more uh, easy to find, but there is, there is a huge shortage, and uh, until that's corrected, it's also really difficult for us to encourage parents to manage their, their children at home when the resources are, are really hard to come by. Dr. Andrew Arcand, Chief of Emergency Medicine at Markham Stovall Hospital, Oak Valley, really, really appreciate your time and your insights today. No, it's my pleasure, and hopefully folks will, will stay safe. I'd encourage you to... Personally, I, I'm still masking indoors just to try to help uh, stop the flow of these viruses. So I'd encourage you, it's a real small thing that you can do, but it may actually make a difference. Do your bit, stay as safe as you can. Uh, we're, we'll be here to help you when, when, uh, when you need it, but um, 
but please be prepared and, and uh, look for all the other alternatives if your issue is not super emergent, but something that maybe could be managed elsewhere. Thank you, Dr. Arcand. No, it's my pleasure. And now to the very concerning rise in respiratory illnesses in young patients and the impact this is having on pediatric health care and on the children themselves. Dr. Anna Banerjee is a pediatric infectious diseases specialist and is our next guest on the feed. Thank you, Dr. Banerjee, for joining us today. My pleasure. So can you explain exactly what RSV is and why it is having such an impact on our young people around the province? So RSV stands for respiratory syncytial virus. It's a very common virus and actually is the number one virus around the world that causes young people less than one year of age to be hospitalized with something called bronchiolitis or viral pneumonia. So it's common. It's been there forever. Um, And so you might say, well, what's the big deal this year? Um, So what's happened is that um, with the COVID measures, with the masking and the distancing and that, you know, we've we've kept RSV very low in the past few years. And so you've got a whole bunch of kids that have never been exposed to RSV before. And often when you get your first episode of RSV, it can be more serious, um, especially if you are younger. The younger you are, it tends to be more serious. If you have underlying conditions like cardiac disease or a respiratory disease, then getting RSV can make it uh, quite significant. Now, the other thing is that Pregnant women, uh, you know, they may be exposed to RSV. We're all being exposed to RSV. It's it's a common virus. But in the past three years with the masks, we haven't had as much RSV. So the pregnant women can't pass the antibodies to their babies. And so these babies are born without uh, any protection against RSV. So we have a population of children that uh, have no immunity and they're being exposed all at once because of, the, the drop in the mask mandates, yeah. and so we're getting a lot of babies sick at the same time. And why are so many children ending up in emergency rooms? Well, it's a combination of we still have COVID, even though people like to think it's gone, it, it's still there. Um, and uh, we have influenza starting, and so we're seeing uh, earlier and higher rates of influenza. So between the three viruses, that's that's making a lot more kids sick than before. Plus, on top of that, you have families where their children are getting viral respiratory illnesses or uh, febrile illnesses, and they don't have access to Tylenol, Advil. And so normally they would be at home treating their kids, and now it's very stressful for a lot of families not to be able to access those uh, pain and fever medications. And so some of them are going to uh, you know, the, the hospitals as well. Still, a lot of family doctors and pediatricians haven't opened up their offices to take off the load uh, so that people aren't going to the emergency department for Tylenol prescriptions or, or for children with fever who are otherwise well. We also understand that there is now a shortage of some uh, antibiotics like amoxicillin, for instance. That's really got to hamper the recovery and the treatment of, of anyone with RSV, but in particular children. Well... Um, not for RSV, because RSV is a virus. And unless you get a secondary infection with an ear, uh, an ear infection or uh, a pneumonia, uh, you, you don't need antibiotics for, for RSV. So the, the problem is that a lot of these kids get viral infections and then we, we jump to antibiotics, which is really not necessary. You know, again, you, you can only treat certain things like uh, ear infections, pneumonias, and strep throat. You know, but a lot of kids, they have viruses for, you know, and fevers and, and people jump the gun. And so there's a bit of overuse of antibiotics, specifically amoxicillin. But um, uh, but it is also frightening that when you do have a child that needs an antibiotic, like they have a pneumonia or they have ear infections, that it's not readily accessible. 
Dr. Banerjee, how does a parent know what to do in a case like this? If, if there are respiratory issues in their child, go to the family doctor. Maybe they don't have a family doctor. We're, we're seeing a shortage of physicians at this point. Go to the ER where we're hearing of, in some cases, wait times are tremendous. They're in, in the case of a hospital or two around Ontario, at least 20 hours, sometimes over 24 hours. How does a parent know what to do? So the first thing is, for most children, this is, these viruses are self-limiting and they, they go away on their own. You don't need antibiotics. I mean, it's very stressful to watch a child that's having fever uh, or is uncomfortable, but this most of this will self-resolve. Most children don't need to be in the emergency department. Most of them do not need to be admitted. So again, if we take a step back, most of this will self-resolve. So... Um, but then if your child has fever, there are things that you could do, like you can try to give them cool drinks and lukewarm baths, things like that. You can also, depending on the age of the child, give uh, crushed adult medication or, for example, for ibuprofen. If a child is 20 kilos, then you can give uh, a 200 milligram uh, adult pill, right? But you have to be very careful. And so you can do that with... Uh, uh, ibuprofen and acetaminophen, but you have to, again, be very careful with those. You cannot give aspirin to these kids because they can have a severe uh, syndrome with it. So you can try to use adult medications. Um, sometimes uh, pharmacists can compound the medications so that you can get ibuprofen and, and uh, acetaminophen uh, in liquid form, but I think a lot of pharmacists are pretty busy you know, with this, but also giving out COVID vaccines, flu vaccines, et cetera. Um, and, but if your child is not feeding, if, if your child, not just uh, not eating as well, but, you know, really not feeding well, uh, you, they're not drinking, they're, they're, they're not peeing uh, like they should be, they're lethargic, or they have any difficulty breathing, they need to be in the emergency department. Yeah. So the increase in the number of cases of young patients with respiratory illnesses is putting a real strain on the healthcare system. It's certainly not their fault. This is uh, the perfect storm, if you will, when it comes to illness yeah. for young people. At this point, what needs to be done in order to support the healthcare system, in order to support our young patients? So um, one is we need to bring back the mass mandates, yeah. especially in school. You know, for the older kids, they may just get a cold and, uh, you know, because most older people, when they're exposed to RSC, it's just a, a cold. They bring it home and they give it to their younger siblings or their, their baby siblings at home and they can end up being really sick. So we need to uh, bring back the mask mandates. The, the um, masks work really well for influenza and uh, RSC, which are spread through droplets. A lot of us believe that COVID is spread uh, droplets and it's airborne, but but masks work really well. Hand washing works really well. The other thing is, if you've got a young infant or someone who's uh, compromised, make sure that anyone that's visiting the new baby is healthy, that they're not sick, and that they wash their hands before touching that infant. Um, other things is is you know if we can get more primary care people to open up their practices, you know after three years it's been it's it, I think it's time now to so that we can offload the pressure from the hospitals so less people are going to the emergency department for things like, you know, runny noses or uh, fevers and, and things where they really don't need to be in the emergency department. But, I, you know, I, I think uh, a big thing now is uh, the mask mandate as well. Um, if you have children, you should get them vaccinated for COVID and influenza because this year you don't want your child to have a febrile respiratory illness because, you know, you don't know, you may not know if it's COVID or if you're influenza, but you, if you eliminate the risk or reduce the risk of two of them, then, then it's less likely you have to suffer through a child with a fever and viral symptoms and you're, and you're feeling like you can't do anything about it. Yeah, pretty scary stuff, but great advice. Dr. Banerjee, do you, in your opinion, feel that pediatric health care is evenly spread throughout our province and, and, and evenly uh, given to all communities around Ontario? Absolutely not. 
Uh, I've been working with as a consultant for COVID um, for Anishinaabeaski Nation, so that's 49 First Nations communities up north. And you know, when when we're saying, okay, we're giving masks to all of kids in school, um, we're giving uh, HAPA filters to school. None of the First Nations communities got anything. You know, so when they say all kids in Ontario, they all mean all kids except for uh, Indigenous children. The, my big concern with this um, respiratory season is, especially for RSC, once RSC starts going into the northern communities, um, and and right now our hospital beds are full, uh, ICU beds are full, then, then where do they go? And so again, you know, Indigenous people are left out of the planning, the discussions, and, you know, it's, it's frightening. If you, uh, a couple of uh, days ago, Manitoba said that they weren't going to accept these uh, babies with RSV uh, from Nunavut, you know, from the Katikmiat region, which has extremely high cases of, uh, of RSV because, you know, they're, they're trying to keep uh, the ICU beds for people in Manitoba. But, it's, and then they reversed the decision because of uh, a public pressure, but, there is um, a vaccine against RSV. It's an antibody that you give once uh, once a month, uh, and they give it to people at high risk, infants at high risk for RSV. So that those are children, um, infants that have uh, uh, that are born prematurely or have significant heart or lung disease. So if you look at the data, the Inuit babies, especially the Kitikmiat region of Nunavut, have the highest rate of admission for RSE, turning with babies. And so why do the uh, kids in Toronto and southern Ontario get access to this antibody when, and the Inuit babies don't, when they have four to eight times the rate of admission for RSE and they get much sicker and they end up in the ICU for prolonged periods of time. And this year as well, where are they going to go when they get really sick with RSE? Um, I have... Uh, we started a petition about this um, about three years ago. My classmates started the petition after I presented the data because they were very upset by it. Now, um, and we have almost a quarter of a million signatures. It's on change.org slash medicine. And after, even after a quarter of a million signatures saying that, that Inuit babies deserve equity in for the palavizumab, the RSV antibody, it still hasn't happened. So how many babies are going to be admitted needlessly and suffer or potentially die when something could have been done? So it's very um, uh, it's very concerning to me this year. And repeat, please, the website where people can go to sign this petition. It's change.org slash fear medicine. Excellent. Um, and again, we have 200, uh, like I think 212 217,000 signatures of respirologists, epidemiologists, uh, neonatologists, uh, you know, in, Inuit people, uh, doctors and nurses who have been up there. We, we have experienced this one individual that is holding this back. Wow. Dr. Anna Banerjee, thank you. Thank you for your powerful passion for proper pediatric health care for all children. Very much appreciate it. Thank you for this opportunity. When we come back, the health beat continues. So is it a cold or is it allergies? The signs and the symptoms. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Our next story is about survival, gratitude, and perseverance. Kevin Frankish with the two-time heart transplant recipient. She was in trouble before she was even born. Three different heart problems detected in an ultrasound. And she is here celebrating her 18th birthday. A lot of this thanks to the David Foster Foundation. Her name is Evan, and she joins me right now. Hi, Evan. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you very much. You uh, you had some heart problems that 
were detected before you were even born. And these were pretty serious, weren't they? They were. I don't even know what they are, but I hear they were very rare and like the doctor didn't know what to do with them. So they tried their best when you were born, but it didn't end there. You still went through a whole heck of a lot over over your the duration of your life. Yeah. I mean, the first heart stuck around for a good while. I got a second heart when I was seven. In the summer of, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had two different hearts in your body. Yeah. Uh, technically three. My first heart was, you know, didn't end well. The second heart for my first transplant. And then my third heart, which we call the golden heart. Because when I received it, Canada had won first gold medal in trampolining in the the Summer Olympics. Oh, okay. And how is the Golden Heart today? It's doing great. <laughs> happy and healthy. Your your mom is there too, um, uh, Tamara. Can I speak to her for a moment? Of course you can. Hi, Tamara. Hello. Um, Hello. It must have been a shock when you found out through the ultrasound that uh, Evan's heart had three different problems with it. So at that first ultrasound, the defects, the three that were shown were absolutely devastating. Uh, it was my first pregnancy and my doctor had actually called me um, while she was on vacation once she had gotten the results because that's just how serious everything was. Um, and then I had to go for several follow-up ultrasounds throughout the course of my pregnancy and almost every ultrasound a new defect would appear just making the need for a heart even more evident and she's had as she explained three hearts in her body the the struggles you must have gone through must have been incredible so the struggles that we've gone through were just the second time I went into autopilot, uh, the first time was definitely, um, I was unaware of what waters I was about to navigate, uh, what lied ahead. The outcome was definitely bleak. There wasn't a lot of um, silver lining or hope given with the prognosis. Um, but with the help of the David Foster Foundation, helping me out financially so that I could focus on Evan, um, emotionally we were doing okay because we the, even right from the get-go as long as i was with her we were okay I, as long as i was beside evan i could focus on her and i didn't have a care in the world outside of evan which was so fortunate for us because i was able to focus um on the love and the healing that evan needed it, it is something people don't think about. You know, they think, okay, she's going to need medicine that has to be paid for. She's going to need hospital stays, doctor's bills. Some things aren't covered um, by insurance. And that's all they think about. They don't think about the other things that the David Foster Foundation steps in for. Things like what, Tamara? So the David Foster Foundation helped pay for accommodations while I was um, away waiting for the transplant. I, Evan was listed for the first transplant while I was still pregnant with her. Um, and I live in Victoria, British Columbia, and I was sent to Toronto at, to Sick Kids Hospital. And the foundation helped to pick up my living expenses there, which was something that 100% I would not have been able to do. This is 18 years ago. This is before the fundraisers and whatnot. This was I had no other choice. I had no avenue. And I didn't know as a single mom how I would get from Victoria to Toronto for the top doctors to take care of my unborn child to ensure that they were to live. And that's when the foundation stepped in and they were able to help with the living, the groceries, the hospital the, food, everything that's needed. The parking. When you're away from home. <laughs> Absolutely, the parking. <laughs> it's, it's almost as expensive as food, or pretty well is as expensive as food. You normally can't afford food because you're paying for parking. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want people to know about the David Foster Foundation? The David Foster 
Foster Foundation is... Like a second family to me. They've inspired me so much. I've even taken an interest in piano because of David Foster. And Mike Ravenhill, he came to visit me in the hospital during my second heart transplant. They're amazing. I love them so much. They've done so much for me and my mom. And I wish I could repay them, which I know they would deny, but I want to repay them somehow. They're more than just a name and a foundation. They literally are like a second family to us. They work with their hearts. They care so much about us. And they're just, I want to say I've never met a foundation like them, but it's not like I have experience with foundations. (laughs) But being with them for over 18 years since before Evan was born up through to her 18th birthday has been nothing short of an amazing experience in amongst all of the heartache and pain and the struggles that we've had with the hospitals and Evan's health, having the foundation cheering us on and supporting us has just made everything so much more easy. So I think maybe the best way, and and I started to say a little bit earlier when Evan had said she doesn't think she could repay them, maybe just a word from you about people checking out davidfosterfoundation.com. Help the David Foster Foundation. You can be an organ donor. You can support them in any way. Support the family, not just me, but the other one. And supporting the David Foster Foundation. And that's davidfosterfoundation.com. And, um, you know, they are a, a wonderful group. They're a great group. But they can't help anyone unless people help them. Right, Evan? Yeah. It's, a, it's kind of like a a circle of some sort. Mm-hmm. You can't help them if you don't help others. It's a cycle of kindness. Circle of life. Well, thank you so much for this. It is wonderful to talk with you on your 18th birthday when I'll bet a lot of people didn't even think you would make it this far. Sometimes I didn't even think I would make it. I look back and I'm just, wow, bewildered. Well, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you to you and to your mom um, for a very heartfelt message. Thank you for interviewing us. With cold and flu season upon us in a big way, now more than ever, it's important to know the difference between feeling under the weather due to a cold or flu or due to allergies. Shaliza Bacchus with The Doctor's Orders. We are at this strange time of year where the weather is changing, our noses are running, and we might not exactly be sure why. Now, I personally am someone who suffers from seasonal allergies, and right now they have been kicking my behind, for lack of a better term. And sometimes it is difficult to differentiate between what exactly is allergies and what the symptoms of a cold may be. So to enlighten us on this entire situation, I'm joined by Dr. Yvette Liu, joining us from the West Coast. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am great. Thank you. Now, I apologize for my voice. Like, literally, the allergies are to blame for that. But uh, first of all, can you tell me what's the weather like on the West Coast? Is it any different than uh, what we're experiencing here in Toronto? Because it's been very warm here. Well, we had some snow over the last few days, but just one to two centimeters. So not very much. And today it's sunny and and beautiful. So it's nice to have a break from that. Yeah, it definitely is. Now, uh, Dr. Liu, I'm sure that at this time of year, you are seeing a lot of people who are suffering from what I just mentioned, you know, runny noses, maybe a cough, uh, just feeling icky. And uh, what have you been finding is uh, the main reason for that? Well, at this time of the year, especially when we're all going indoors again, we do see a lot more uh, of colds and and influenza. Influenza season is starting. So I do recommend that people look at getting their influenza vaccine and, of course, their COVID booster. And uh, if, if people are experiencing seasonal allergies as well, how can you really tell the difference between the two? it can be really challenging to tell the difference sometimes. So allergies happen because the body detects a protein in the environment. We call that protein an allergen and it sees the protein as a threat. So it mounts an immune response to that protein. And so the body will secrete inflammatory chemicals like histamine. 
And when the body sees a virus in the environment, it mounts a very similar immune response. So you have symptoms like runny nose, cough, sore throat, itchy and watery eyes, uh, headache, fatigue. In children, you may see them rubbing their nose or breathing through their mouths. You may see them having difficulty concentrating in school or even uh, having difficulty keeping up with their friends in gym class. So the symptoms can be very similar. So a few key things to remember, colds and viruses and influenza tend to be time limited. So colds will last maybe three to seven days and influenza will last one to two weeks, whereas allergies will last as long as the allergen is around. So for people with pollen allergies, it will just be when the pollen is in the air. But for people with seasonal allergies to indoor allergens like dust mites, pets, and mold, the allergen can be there all year round. So you might have symptoms all year round. Also, you can look at some of the symptoms because there is a subtle difference. With the influenza, you will get a fever, you'll get muscle aches and pains, you'll get chills, and you won't see those kinds of symptoms with allergies. Interesting. And I, I want to go back to those uh, allergens that can be indoors. You know, now that the weather is getting colder, we're spending a lot more time indoors. Is there any way to prevent those allergens from affecting us? Yes. So I recommend people figure out what they're allergic to because it can be very helpful if you know what you're allergic to because then you can take precautionary measures. So one way you can do this is doing an allergy test with an allergist and they can do a skin test, find out what you're allergic to. If it's in the spring or summer, you're allergic to pollens, you can look at the pollen count in the air when you have a lot of symptoms and sort of try and figure out what you're allergic to by looking at the pollen count. But if you have indoor allergens, you'll probably need to see an allergist. Once you know what you're allergic to, take precautions. Say you're allergic to dogs. So if you have a dog, you want to brush your dog outdoors so that the dander stays outdoors as much as possible. You want to clean regularly, have a regular schedule for cleaning so you don't forget, especially if you have carpets. Allergens tend to accumulate in carpets. If you have a pet and you're allergic, you want to keep your pet out of certain areas where allergens tend to accumulate, like you might want to restrict them from entering the bedroom. You might want to say that they're not allowed on the sofa. If you have allergies to molds, you can try turning on the fan in areas that tend to be more wet, like bathrooms, laundry rooms, basements. And you can also use a dehumidifier. Some people also find a HEPA filter to be helpful. Yes, those are all very, very helpful tips. And uh, you mentioned off the top the importance of uh, vaccines and the influenza uh, vaccine and things like that. But are there any other remedies uh, for both allergies and colds? Or, and are there any that work specifically for what you're suffering from? Well, we talked a lot about the allergy symptoms and they can be quite a significant burden for people who suffer from them, especially if they suffer from them every day. So if those measures that we talked about earlier aren't working, then you can try an oral antihistamine medication like Reactin. And the oral antihistamines work throughout your whole body. So if you have whole body symptoms, you want to try a, a pill kind of medication. If you just have uh, symptoms that are just in one part of your body, some people may have just watery and itchy eyes. So then they can try an antihistamine eye drop. Or if they just have symptoms in their nose, they can try a corticosteroid nasal spray. And then if you just have so many symptoms, you can't stand them anymore. You can even talk to an allergist about getting immunotherapy or allergy shots. And nowadays, actually, immunotherapy can be in the form of a pill too for certain allergens. So you don't have to go in and get shots every week. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not something I am here for. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, it can be very, very frustrating. Do you have any other tips to kind of navigate through this difficult time of year? Because as much as I love the fall, the one thing that is not fun is the weather change and just trying to adjust to the shorter days, the colder air. It's It's a lot on the body as well. It is. Yes. So for people who have allergies every day, they can actually take an antihistamine medication every day. But I would check with your doctor first to make sure you don't have eye disease or sinus disease or something else that might not actually be allergies. So you don't want to automatically assume you have allergies. For people with cold and flu symptoms, it's, it's just important to maintain your health. So have good nutrition, make sure you get rest. If you get sick, some people try to work through their their infection um just they they keep exercising and they keep going to work we really don't want to do that especially with covid um we we want to make sure we stay home and and get our rest uh, even influenza you don't want to spread that around because some people can get very sick with influenza and even if you don't get that sick you can spread it to someone who might get really sick and that's why we recommend the flu vaccine yeah 
Thank you, Dr. Lou, for all of these insightful tips. I'm just trying to navigate through all of it right now. I know it's a very difficult time of year for a lot of people, but hopefully these tips were helpful for some people. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me today. And wishing everyone good health. Yes, definitely. After the break, trees to honor those who served. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. The Highway of Heroes tree campaign is a living tribute to veterans and their families. Jim Lang now with what's next for this group. Over the last number of years, something very special has been happening along the Highway of Heroes. They've done a tree campaign to plant two million trees in honor of every Canadian who served in our country's armed forces, include, I'm proud to say, my father, a former member of the RCAF, and a man who spearheaded the campaign is someone that's a household name to millions of Canadians, Mark Cullen, and he joins us on the feed today. Mark, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, Jim. Um, this is very special. We just had Remembrance Day on Friday, and there's been a lot of commemorations of building up to it and people reflecting after the fact. But um, th- there's something about the, the importance of a tree, the um, the life-giving of a tree that had special meaning to this commemoration. How, how did you come up with the idea to plant two million trees along the Highways of Hero to pay tribute to our armed forces? Well, to be honest, the idea started with trees. <laughs> and, and it started with a bunch of not-for-profit tree planting, tree huggers, trying to figure out how we could double the urban tree canopy in an effort to save humankind because you know, we need trees. If we don't have trees, we, we don't have life. And uh, it was Tony DeGiovanni, the Landscape Ontario Executive Director, who put up his hand eight years ago and he said, let's reforest the Highway of Heroes. And that led to a further discussion with the Ministry of Transportation um, and uh, development of a plan to raise $10 million uh, to plant a tree for every Canadian lost of war. That's 117,000 since the War of 1812, plus 2 million trees, one for each Canadian that volunteered for military service during times of war. So we're actually planting two and a half million trees because we know that not every one of them is going to live, but our record so far is 85% survival rate. So we can guarantee there's a tree for everybody that served. And you had alluded to the benefits of trees. I mean, they clean the air, they filter carbon, they provide life, they give oxygen, they filter water. A tree does so many things that we don't think about that, well, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for trees. Yeah, that's true. You know, there's such a thing as tree blindness. Hmm. You know, we, they're so, we're so used to seeing them in our environment that um, we, we sometimes complain about them because they drop leaves this time of year and we have to rake them up. Well, let me ask you a question, and it's not for you, it's for your listeners, of course. But when you want to have a picnic in the middle of the summer during a heat wave, where are you going to throw the picnic blanket? Well, not on your driveway. <laughs> Right? The answer is obvious. You're going to put it. You're going to throw that picnic blanket underneath the shade of the shade tree, and you're going to enjoy the 10 to 12 cooler degrees there than out in the blazing sunshine. And you're going to enjoy the 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 the, the moisture that it transpires, the oxygen that it produces, the carbon that it sequesters. It's the most sophisticated breathing machine in the world, and there's nothing created by the hand of humankind that comes close. And I think about your resume and how you've become synonymous with trees and plants and gardening and and just sustainability. But there's something about this legacy that you've left, Mark, that's going to outlive you for generations. It's very special. I think appreciated by a lot of Canadians. Why why was this so important to you and your family to be a part of this and be so passionate spearheading this? Well, that's a really good question. I as, as I said. Really, it began with a love of trees and a desire to plant more trees uh, in the urban environment where Canadians live, work, and play. But also, I've always felt, an, and I mean this very sincerely, a heartfelt uh, level of gratitude to our 
to Canadians who have served in the military, Canadians who volunteered to, to join the military during times of war, and most of all, as we've just completed uh, you know, Veterans Week and we put a wrap on that, this time of year has always touched my heart. It really has. And, uh, and when Tony put up his hand and said, let's reforest the Highway Heroes, instantly I went to... I went to that sort of emotion I have about the Canada's military and, and the need for us to continue to say thank you and to show gratitude. And as a result, we now have the largest living memorial in the world to a nation's military. And that gives me a great deal of pride and satisfaction. Speaking with Mark Cullen about the Highway of Heroes tree campaign, get more details and more photos of everything that took place at Trees for Life dot ca um i mean i think about uh, uh, you know our society now mark and we're so inundated by social media and technology and this is almost a, a, a way to get away from the screen and look at a tree and enjoy a tree you mentioned having a picnic um maybe just taking a walk in a forest and that and there's something so calming and brings us back to nature and is so self-affirming that spending time with trees, walking around trees, a tree in your yard, I I mean, I know, I mean, I'm just speaking personally, it gives me lots of pleasure. And I just think anywhere that's forested, it just, it, there's a better look, a better feel about it, Mark. Well, that, that's very kind of you. And, and I think it's the sort of different layers of, um, the different layers of benefits that we enjoy out of this project. You know, the Highway of Heroes, which runs between the coroner's office in Toronto and CFB Trent, 170 kilometers, it's actually the busiest stretch of highway in North America. So if you, if you wanted to do one thing on that stretch of highway, wouldn't it be to plant trees to help sort of ameliorate some of the uh, carbon that's produced by the vehicles that travel down it every day and maybe enhance the actual visual experience you have as you travel down the highway. So as a result, and I think this is important, um, we're telling our story at En Route with an art installation um, at Port Hope on the eastbound 401 and Trenton on the westbound 401 so that as people travel down the highway and they're probably not aware of the trees, they might be now that you've talked about and we've had this chance to talk here, but, but uh, they'll be able to learn about what we did planting two and a half million trees on the Highway of Heroes. Because let's face it, we have not done this for ourselves or for our generation. We've done this for people we haven't even met yet mm -hmm. because they're not born. And I'm hoping that two, three generations from now, people will go, aha, so that's the story. And I hope it has some meaning for them. And Mark and I, have, I don't know how many times I've done that drive uh, east of Toronto towards CFB Trenton. My father used to be posted there, and uh, I have a daughter yeah. going to Carleton University. And to think generations down the road, magnificent trees providing shade in the summer and shelter from the snow in the winter, uh, with a commemoration to the military, uh, to me, it doesn't get better than that. Well, that's, that's very kind of you to say, and I couldn't agree with you more. Mark, an absolute pleasure. Uh, my wife and I are huge fans. Of course, she's Dutch, so I mean, gardening's in her DNA. Mm -hmm. And uh, and to right. know what you've meant to uh, people in this province, in this country, to make better gardens and trees and just enjoy and what you've done for the military is deeply appreciated. Thank you so much for your time, Mark. It's a pleasure. Thank you. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.